back up here. Chapter 14 um, really serves to bring us to the end of another cycle of visions. This particular cycle that we're in, if you can remember it all, we've been kind of staggered here. It began in chapter 12 with the anticipation of Christ's birth. It ends here in this chapter with final judgment. And you could track it. There's introductory vision formulas throughout this section here. And I saw or uh, and behold, those are divide this one vision cycle into seven sections. Uh, in the 12th and 13th chapters, we were given a picture of the persecution believers are going to face or will face or are facing by the forces of evil, by unbelievers that are aligned with the beasts and with the devil. Of course, it's led by Satan and his two beasts. The, the, the beasts uh, deceive multitudes into following them. Now in chapter 14, and really later in the first part of chapter 15, we're being given a picture of the final reward of the persecuted faithful and the final punishment of the beast and those who follow him. In fact, chapter 15 will describe the saints' victory over the beast and give praise to God for his glory. God is being glorified here because he is the one who judged the beast and enabled his saints to defeat him. So everything from 12.1 to 15.4 really moves towards the goal of God's glory before the bull cycle that we'll get into uh, begins in judgment of his enemies and in the reward of the faithful. Both are for the purpose of God's glory. So it it's, starts with the birth of Christ, this cycle. It's ending with final, ultimate judgment as well as historical judgment. But uh, a warning of judgment is given here, as we're going to see in just a few minutes in verses 6 and 7, but it isn't going to be heeded at least by and large, the world system and its followers will reject Christ, which will result in their climactic final judgment at the end of history in verse eight. But that final historical judgment or judgment in history in time is the prelude to the final judgment, uh, eternal judgment that we'll read of in verses nine through 11. But this warning that that's mainly what it is, this warning to the unbelieving also serves to exhort true believers to remain faithful to Christ. Those who don't receive judgment from God, but receive his eternal reward in verses 12 and 13. So to summarize this section of chapter 14, the second half of it, God will judge the rebellious world that worships all that is against his son, but will eternally reward those who are faithful and endure through their oppression. So let me pray over this passage and we'll begin. Father, we thank you once more for your word. God, I thank you for your people here that love your word. And I pray that you would enable us to understand what this passage is saying to us that was inspired by you so long ago. Lord, may we pull from it what you breathed into it no more and no less if you will be with us by your grace and your spirit in these moments. And God, I thank you for this opportunity to speak and ask for your overshadowing power over myself and the one who hears. And I ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me read verses 6 through 11 here of chapter 14. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. 
And he said with a loud voice, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second followed saying, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, the third followed them saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. So, um, if we can take our minds back for a moment, the spotlight in the first six verses of chapter 14 was on heaven. Now the, the spotlight changes to earth and the proclamations of three angels. Each angel gives a very serious warning to those who have aligned themselves with the dragon, the beasts, and the harlot Babylon, the, um, the queen consort, if you will, of the beast that came out of the sea. Uh, the first angel in verses 6 and 7 brings an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. There's that phrase again, the earth dwellers in Revelation from every nation and tribe and language and people. Normally in Revelation, that's a good thing. It's describing the multitude praising Christ. Here it's not. Not this time. These are they that have given their allegiance to the beast and its image. We've read about them in chapter 13, verse 7, verses 12 through 14. This angel proclaims that the hour of God's judgment has come, yet at this point he still proclaims a gospel. He still gives good news, even though it doesn't sound like it. He's summoning earth dwellers to repent. Repent, fear God, give him glory, the creator of heaven and earth and the springs and the sea of water. This summons to both fear and worship lets them know it's almost, but it's not quite too late to heed the warnings of the restrained trumpet judgments that have fallen as fire on earth and sky and sea back in chapter 8, verses 7 through 12. So what God has been doing to wake people up, this angel comes towards the end of that to say, listen, it's almost over, but it's not quite too late yet. God has been holding back in his mercy so that they would repent. But soon that's going to stop. He's going to unleash his full wrath at the end of history, the second angel pronounces something that's already decided before the world is ever made aware of it. That's why it speaks of it in the past tense, even though technically it hasn't happened yet. And that's the fall of Babylon, the great in verse eight, which in the text of Revelation, this comes out of nowhere because John hasn't mentioned Babylon by name at all in the book of Revelation so far. So where do they come from? He's talked about the holy city. Mentioned as being trampled by the Gentiles for 42 months. Back in chapter 11, verse 2, long before that holy city is seen as a bride adorned for her husband, right? Descending from heaven for her wedding in 21, 2. Uh, John, the visions do this sometimes. The beast that comes from the abyss is mentioned first when it wars against and conquers the witnessing church in chapter 11, verse 7. And only later in chapter 13, is it actually seen coming up out of the sea to receive power from the dragon to make that war against the saints? So here the fall of Babylon is revealed as though it's already 
happen, though it won't do its falling until a later vision. But her identity will be revealed in that later vision. But the image of when here of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon in the exile of ancient Judah, right? That's Babylon in their minds would let first century Christians know his immediate audience that, okay, this Babylon is a code word for the pagan power oppressing them in their day, Rome, and the entire world system it embodies. Remember, Peter also calls Rome Babylon back in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13. So Babylon is a word image for the system these Christians are oppressed by, which is Rome and everything in the world its system embodies that they're living under. The reason given here for the fall of Babylon, the fall of Rome, of the world system, is the fact that she has seduced the nations and made them drunk with her potion of passionate sexual immorality. We see this uniquely embodied all over the world in our day right now, don't we? This, this, this sexual immorality, and talk, mentioned it very briefly this morning, but people actually finding their identity in their sexuality, but making sexuality such a loaded word. I mean, my, my goodness. I mean, who had, whether or not, you know, a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl on their calendar of doomsday. I mean, Mike, we're arguing that. I mean, it's just, it's so sexual immorality. It's, it's, that's, um, a major symptom of the world system and it's evil in particular. But here's the thing the angel is saying, God is about to reciprocate Babylon's wrath, Rome's wrath, is making people drunk with its sexual immorality and passion. God is about to reciprocate her wrath against his people by making her drink the wine of his wrath down to the dregs. You make the world drink this, I'll make you drink my wine. See that again in 18.6 and 19.2. That image comes up a lot. So in other words, those carousing with Babylon, drunk with her, in her self-indulgence and violence will also drink the cup of the divine wrath God has for her in this soon coming day of judgment. In verse 10, we read about it. We read about it uh, later, God willing, uh, next week in verse 19, or I guess the week after with Memorial Day. But the third angel's announcement in verses 9 through 11 describes the corporate consequences of Babylon's fall on each of the individual members of it. So that have given her their allegiance and to the beasts and to the dragon. In the beginning of verse 9 and the end of verse 11, we have these identical descriptions of their crime against God the Creator that they're being punished for. This is the fate here in the text of anyone and everyone who worships the beast and its image and receives its mark. The perversion or opposite of the seal of the Holy Spirit in the heart of believers. Beloved, those who are deceived by and give in to Rome or any world system, believing it deserves our allegiance and trust, they are pictured here as alienated from the Lamb. They are excluded back in 13.8, if you remember, from His book of life. The only shield to protect us from the fiery torment of God's righteous wrath is that protective seal of his name and his blood. Again, it's not a mark that God does not give a mark, but a seal on us. This was in chapter 14, this same chapter, verse 
one. It's the opposite of the mark of the beast. The presence of the Lamb that brings joy and comfort to His redeemed people, that same presence will bring unrelenting pain and anguish to those who believe the dragon's lies and stake their lives on them as we see in chapter 10. Revelation speaks of wine symbolizing God's wrath in two ways. There's the image of grapes being crushed. The red juice that flows from a wine press is is likened to the blood of God's enemies when he tramples them. Later in verses 19 and 20. But Revelation also uses the image of what wine is like when it's fermented. That that, that image speaks of of, uh, the power of the beast to numb our minds and symbolizes the confused stupor of those who are going to drink or are drinking the cup of God's wrath. Here, the angel is using that second image that's being poured out for divine wrath, as in Old Testament passages like Psalm 75, 7 and 8, where the psalmist also speaks there of God as judge with a cup in his hand, right, that he's about to pour out on the wicked. So the Bible has used this imagery before. But then we see, we have the idea of wine and wrath. Then we see this image of fire and sulfur or brimstone in verse 10, also as an outpouring of God's wrath on his enemies. That image implies great physical pain and terror. Later, in chapter 20, verses 13 through 15, the sea and the grave will give up their dead to face the final judgment. This is a huge idea in Revelation. For both believers and unbelievers, body and soul will one day be reunited to receive the verdict of the judge who sits on the great white throne. And there's another element in the text of the physical suffering they'll experience here. Restlessness. Eternal restlessness. He says they have no rest day or night in verse 11. If if we take the end of verse 10 and the beginning of verse 11, the picture of God's judgment here is drawn biblically from God's judgment on Edom all the way back in Isaiah Chapter 34, verses 9 through 10. This, this, this nation that once destroyed by God's judgment is never going to rise again. And that is exactly what will happen to unbelievers in the judgment at the end of time. They will never rise again. That judgment will be absolute and complete. Evil and those who love it and do it will never rise up again. When you wonder sometimes, or when we wonder, uh, are we sure that, that the, the eternal rest and joy will go on forever? What if there's another rebellion? What if there's another fall? There won't be. They will never rise up again. But let's talk about what the Bible's telling us here. The reality of conscious, physical, eternal torment is a very hard pill to swallow. It's a very hard pill to swallow. It, it is, right? It, it brings up a lot of questions. A lot of questions. What is this final judgment really like? This torment, right? Does the biblical text teach us that unbelievers... So, so here's... Um, maybe in the 80s, although, I mean, it was there before. It, it's, it's always been... But there, there were some pretty orthodox theologians that ended up, at least on the doctrine of hell, coming to different conclusions. So you had like uh, Clark Pinnock came to believe in annihilationism. Uh, John Stott, who well, The Cross of Christ is a phenomenal book. And uh, he came to, to uh, eventually to deny 
that the Bible taught there was eternal conscious torment in hell, that those were images, and actually what Pinnock and Stott and, and many others believe, that uh, or believe, they've both passed on, but uh, that what happens is, what this, ta- this is talking about is that you cease to exist. Annihilationism. You're, you're judged and then annihilated. You don't exist anymore. Um, that's a way, and, and one of the amazing things, I think it was, John Stott. No, it was, it, it was Pinnock. Those were kind of the, the bigger names that Pinnock said. He literally wrote, I didn't come to this conclusion of annihilationism based on the text, but on, quote, I remember this, moral revulsion at the idea of eternal conscious torment. So at least he was honest. You understand what he's saying? He's saying, I didn't reach the belief that actually you're annihilated, you, do, you, you don't suffer forever, because that's morally reprehensible to imagine. God would never do such a thing. That's why he arrived there. He's saying that the Bible didn't really tell me that. I just can't accept that God would be like that. That's a very, very dangerous place to be. And look, if, if we're honest, eternal conscious torment, that, that's, that's a heavy thing. Like, let's not make light of that. But, I mean, to come to the place where we're just basically saying, God, you can't be what you've said you are. We don't, we shouldn't ever do that. Ever. What does the text teach, though? That's what matters. Does it, is there any grounds to believe from the Bible that unbelievers are simply going to be annihilated and just cease to exist forever? You start thinking about that practically, there are the tough questions, but then there are tough questions like this. I think Adolf Hitler would say, oh, right on. Yeah, I'll just cease to exist. I won't care. Right? I don't, great, I won't be punished for eternity for this. Just knock me out of existence, right? So it has its own problems. It doesn't really solve anything. But does the Bible teach some form of that, or will it not go on forever? Or does the Bible actually teach that this destruction refers to the eternal conscious suffering of unbelievers? There, I guess there, there is a way, uh, although I, I don't think it, I don't think it works, but you could say that from the, you have this image from the Old Testament at least of words on judgment that, that say, you know, final judgment refers to the annihilation of unbelievers rather than Conscious eternal suffering. If, if you tried, you could say um, you have the image of smoke in the Old Testament also. But the smoke means it's, it's, it's a memorial of God's annihilation of sin. Right. So if you really wanted to make a leap, in my opinion, you could say, well, you know, there it, it meant sin was being annihilated. So if we see smoke again, it means this, the unbelievers being annihilated. But later in chapter 20, verse 10 the parallel to this passage here in 14 refers to the devil, the beast, and the false prophet experiencing judgment in the lake of fire and brimstone, where the text says they will be tormented, again, day and night, forever and ever. We would have no reason from the biblical text to distinguish the fate of Satan's servants in 14, 10 through 11, with those same words, from their satanic representatives and leaders, in chapter 20, verse 10, and really in chapter 19, verse 20, you have a tormenting in the lake of fire and brimstone in both passages. The fact that the ungodly here are thrown into this same lake of fire that their satanic leaders are thrown into further confirms this. It's talking about the same punishment. 
also the word torment, basanismos, in Greek in verses 10 through 11 here, isn't used anywhere else in Revelation or in Scripture, period, to refer to the annihilation of existence. That's just not what torment means. It's, it's just not what it means. Without exception, it refers in Revelation to conscious, in other words, I'm aware of it, suffering on the part of the people. There, there's at least, what, six, seven other uh, uses of it in Revelation. You have uh, the same use of it in Matthew 4.24, Mark 6.48, Luke 8.28, just Second Peter 2.8. Just to let you know, the Bible is very clear what this torment is, and it's torment. And torment is a word you use when you're feeling something, not when you're unaware of it, right? This word group that you see here appears about a hundred times in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, and it always refers to conscious suffering. So the phrase, the smoke of their torment, in verse 11, is a mixed metaphor. Smoke is figurative of an enduring memorial here of God's punishment towards sin that involves a real, ongoing, eternal, conscious torment. And that, beloved, is terrifying. There's no other word for this. Terrifying. That phrase, day and night, even further clarifies the endless nature of the suffering of the lost because it's paralleled in the passage with the words in the preceding phrase, forever and ever. Right? He's, he's just adding on to, to make sure we understand this is never going to stop. It's never going to stop. This is an endless period of uninterrupted restlessness Imagine that and physical torment. That is what literally awaits all who reject Christ and pledge their allegiance to the world. That's what awaits every single denier of Christ. The nature of the torment itself, right? What will it be like is described again, first of all, as a lack of rest. Notice that in verse 13, believers receive eternal Rest. Unbelievers receive the opposite of that. Eternal unrest when they die. In fact, or when they're judged. That phrase describing those who worship the beast and his image in verse 11 is a verbatim repetition of the same phrase, and they have no rest day or night. You know where else we've seen that? In chapter 4, verse 8 of Revelation, where it's used to describe the endless, eternal worship of God which we, would, we know never stops, by the cherubim in heaven, which, by the way, has been going on since at least Ezekiel 1, right? Let's go a little further. If, if, why is final judgment and punishment for sin eternal conscious torment? Why? I, I, I'm, I'm talking, trying to talk through that with you because I know that we, we all probably in one way or another wonder that or ask that. I don't know that we can fully answer the why. But it is what I believe Scripture teaches without question. I think that at least in some sense, what hell is, is an echo of the glory of God and of the insufficiency of anything but the blood of Christ to cleanse sin. I think, I think that's part of why Hell is eternal 
conscious, ceaseless torment. Something is being said in the reality of that eternal conscious torment about what sin really is and about who God is. And so if the punishment against sin is eternal and conscious, could it be that it's because God will never stop being holy and the blood of Christ will never stop being the only way a person's sins can be atoned for? Which is what the sinner has rejected as payment for his or her sins. In other words, if each sin came with a certain amount of years of punishment, that there's a name for that. Think about purgatory, okay, that the Catholic Church teaches. I, I, we, we, we have nothing of that in inspired scripture, but that's what they teach is dogmatic. So let's say uh, unforgiven adultery was a thousand years of, of hell. A literal 1,000 years or whatever you want to say. Stealing a, uh, you know, a, a candy bar is maybe two years or something, right? If, if, if that's the way it worked, then you could be punished long enough to assuage God's wrath against your sin. Now think about the implications of that. What would that mean? That, that, that would mean the blood of Jesus is almost superfluous. Technically, it's not needed. To gain eternal life, it just might take longer for you if you don't go that route. See how demeaning that is to Jesus. So I'll pay my debt then so that I can do what I want now. Right? So I'll, I'll just suffer until it's atoned for by my suffering. And so I'll get paradise. I'll just get it later. Right? But at least I'll get it. Horribly disrespectful at best to the cross. I mean, it's, it's, it's borderline blasphemous. Eternal conscious torment means at least the fact that that's how it is means that our blood, our suffering will never redeem ever and never be sufficient to wash away our sin and our guilt. That that's at least part of what it means. You see how this is how Christ becomes central, even down in the depths of hell. You, you can't be you can't burn long enough in fire and sulfur and suffer enough unrest to atone for your own sin. There's atonement in one thing, one way, and you spurned it. I mean, we, eternity isn't long enough for us to meet the holiness of God in suffering. There is no way in life or in death to atone for our own sin. That's what we're learning here. It's, it's, God is not cruel God is so holy, we don't even grasp how offensive sin is. To us, it seems unfair. Right? Just for, forever? Like forever, ever? Beloved, we, we listen, and I, I know I've probably said this before, but if anything in the Bible should make us say, uh, that doesn't sound right, it's got to be heaven, not hell. Heaven should bother us a lot more than hell does. We all love justice, we all cry for it and want it. That's all hell is. It's God giving to the guilty exactly what he said he would do if they didn't come through the atonement of Christ. It's, it's justice, right? Heaven, Jesus had to die for that to be just on God's timetable, right? So what is unjust? Whether we understand why a sinner merits eternal conscious torment, whether we understand that or not, what we do know is that the saved people have not merited eternal conscious rest. That we do know. We don't deserve that. We got that on the back of another. 
who was innocent, crucified for us. If anything should bother us, it's the eternal rest of the saved rather than the eternal punishment of the damned. And look, I, I, I know it's not an easy thing. And maybe most of us have made peace with it. I don't know, but it is rough to think about. It's scary to think about. We don't want that for our loved ones that reject Christ. We don't want that really for anybody, right? But, beloved, hell is about how holy our God is, I, I, I think, how deep His justice is, and how exclusively sufficient His Son's blood is. So praise God for Jesus Christ. Praise God for Him. What, what did He, what He must have endured for you and I at Calvary? What must He have went through to assuage that? You realize that's what Jesus is saving you from. So that when He comes with a rod of iron, our heads aren't getting broken. I mean, just, it's, it's just unbelievable. We can't even fathom what Jesus suffered to buy us out of this because that's what we have merited. That's what we deserve. And, and, and maybe tonight, I, I don't know, but let's say there's an unbeliever here or an unbeliever that hears talk like this and says, what are, are you, are you trying to scare me? Yes. Good Lord. Like, I hope it works. I mean, that this, God is true. Think what you want. God is true. Every man is a liar. This is going to happen. He is God. He is God. Now, in verses 12 and 13, we're going to get the second of seven benedictions in Revelation that are pronounced on those who die in the Lord. Seven times in the book of Revelation, there are these benedictions for those who die in the Lord. Here it's described as rest from their labors and entrance into the final Sabbath celebration, the eternal one, which includes relief and release from suffering and trouble and labor. But again, not for the wicked. All that they suffer here only gets worse in eternity. Now, in the face of these three judgments we've seen in chapter 14, which are the fact that the hour of judgment has come, Babylon has fallen, even though technically it hasn't happened yet, and the beast's followers face torment, in the face of these three judgments that have been pronounced, John interjects here to give a word of direct application to his hearers and his readers in verse 12. Let's look there. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven. Or I'll get to 13 in a moment. So verse 12 is the third of four sayings with a similar structure in Revelation. Here is, right? We've seen that. Here is, that phrase means, in light of what I've just said, this is the appropriate response, right? In light of the fact then, in chapter 14, that judgment and vindication will come, in light of the fact that God will be glorified forever in both the punishment of the wicked and the salvation of the faithful, you and I, beloved, must endure in faith. Each time we see these admonishments, here is, here is, here is, we're being told, Though the beast and the dragon seem so strong, though wickedness seems so widespread and victorious, keep on believing. Our champion is stronger and it is all in his hands. 
The saints are called to persevere again in trusting Jesus, keeping God's commands. Not necessarily, right, because of our enemy's great power presently, but mainly because of the reality of their future destruction. In light of that, he says, keep enduring. And listen, it's still happening. The world is still evil and growing increasingly evil and immoral. But the fat lady is warming up, beloved. It's over. Christ has won. Okay, you you and I need to know this, that eternity is coming. This is how it's going to end. This is what will be. Eyes on Christ, beloved. Eyes on Christ all the way home. All the way to the end. All the way to the end. This is how it's going to shake out. Right? We have the promise of His Word. Verse 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on, in light of all these things. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. John is commanded by a voice from heaven to literally write a blessing on those who endure in faith, even unto death. God wants this written. This, of course, includes those who are martyred for their faith. They fulfill this verse in a very direct way, literal way. But there's no textual reason to limit this blessing here only to those who are martyred directly for Christ. Right? There's, there's no reason to limit it to that. This means that any and all who die in faith, regardless of the direct circumstances around their death, will be blessed with rest from their labors. Whatever those were in his name, whatever they were in his name. We all live in this world that lies in the sway of the evil one. We all suffer, but notice that here the focus is on their lives of steadfast obedience. It's not on the nature of their deaths as it is elsewhere. You notice that this speaks of all those who remain faithful until the end, regardless of how the end came. The reason for their blessedness here is that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. So the reason for blessedness here is their endurance in doing good. So we are called to endure not only because we will have to experience all these threats from the state, from the worldly system, even the synagogue for many of these believers, and they will intimidate us, but we're also being reminded here and called to endurance because endurance makes us weary. It it makes us weary. It gets hard and tiring to do good in the face of mounting evil, especially when it feels like you're just throwing a a firecracker at a tank, right? It can often feel like that. That's, That's why we get texts of encouragement like Galatians 6, 9. Don't grow weary in doing good. We will. The temptation will always be there that what is the point of this, right? I mean, what is the point of... Continuing to do this and serve here and or teach this class or be nice to my neighbor. When the nicer I am, the meaner they get. Whatever it is, beloved, rest is coming from this. And God is aware of this. The first blessing here of those who die in union with Jesus is rest from the labor that made us so weary. In 6, 9 through 11, we learn that even as They await the final vindication that comes here. Those who have died already in the Lord 
have entered the eternal Sabbath rest promised to them in Christ. From now on, right? Those who die, they, they, their soul goes immediately into the presence of God and into this great rest, regardless of how they die. But God isn't going to forget our labor either. The second blessing here is the promise of our deeds accompanying us into God's rest, which again, beloved, nothing goes unseen by our God. Don't ever think too little of how you serve the Lord. Please do not. Please do not. The hope of our bodily resurrection means that the deeds done in the body for our neighbors out of love for Jesus, they actually mean something for eternity. 2 Corinthians 5.10, right? Yes, these good works that we do, they're done in a body defiled by sin, a body disabled by the curse. Yes, these deeds have been done in a body that will one day return to the dust from which it came. 1 Corinthians 15.42 and 43. But... The grace and power of the risen Christ will transform all our deeds into thank offerings that are eternally pleasing to our Father. Paul builds on that encouragement back in 1 Corinthians 15 precisely because of the hope of resurrection. He writes, Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. We set up so much of our confidence and hope and happiness in results. Right? Beloved, Jesus died alone, betrayed, with basically only his mom having enough guts to stand there while he died. And one of his disciples. We ought not to go off of results. We all want them. I want them. My goodness. But we can't, beloved. We're being told here, listen, I see your labor. When, when you come in, all that is going to follow you in here. Notice, it's not getting you in there. It's not preceding us. It's following us. God sees it all. Right? I, I, I know I've told you the story before, but Martha Mace, that, that, that name will always be in my mind. The first pastorate I ever had, a lady that was able to attend church twice in the time that I was there. I did her funeral I went to see her in the hospital. I went to see her once they sent her home to pass. That woman grabbed my hand, squeezed it, and said, I pray for you every day. Every word that precious woman ever said will follow her for eternity in light of God. Laying on a bed, able to do nothing. She did something for me that I will never forget. Ever. That was, that was 19 years ago. I'll never forget that lady. Ever. And, and that's the thing. So much goes unseen here and unappreciated. And I, I, I don't deny that. But beloved, this is an eternity. Right? God sees all of it. All of it. Some, you, you buy a, a brother or sister lunch, that's following you into eternity. Right, you 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 visit somebody, you hand out bulletins. You, I mean, you think, oh, come on, beloved, don't belittle what is done for the name of the Lord. Don't belittle it. He doesn't. This isn't the only place to glorify God in the church. My goodness. Even before the final resurrection, as saints fall asleep in the Lord, 
even our loved ones that have gone before us. Their souls are at rest in the presence of their master right now. Don't you forget this. Don't forget this. We know from the word, as awful as it is to lose, that right now, beloved, I promise you in the name of Christ, they are so at rest, so joyful, so safe, they probably wouldn't want to come back if they could. Praise God for Jesus Christ. Our eternal comfort and joy and theirs are secured by his great well done. Matthew 25, 21. So judgment or reward, those are the prospects for us all for eternity. And whether we rest in eternal joy in the presence of God forever and ever, or face eternal conscious torment away from his presence, it all depends on one thing, just one. Our disposition towards one name, one thing, Jesus Christ. This is what he was doing for us when he came. To live the life of perfect obedience that we could not. Performing all the righteousness God required. And then offered up that spotless sacrifice to God, whereby God raised him from the dead. He was providing for us, literally, the only means of salvation from what we actually eternally deserved. Praise His name. This isn't because God is arbitrary or grouchy, but because God really is holy and He cannot, will not deny Himself. The sufficiency of the work of Christ, the reality of eternal torment and judgment, both of these serve to testify to the holiness of God and the perfection of His Son's blood and His saving grace. Beloved, because of this, because He has done it all, because He keeps His promises and we have nothing to fear, neither from this world or from the judgment, because of that, beloved, endure. Endure to the end. Don't stop. Don't stop doing good. If, if, if you, I can't remember who said it. If you knew the world would end tomorrow, what would you do? He said, I'd plant a tree. I'm still here today. I can't remember who said that. Such a great idea. Because he keeps his promises and we have nothing to fear, neither from the world or from judgment. Beloved, you stay the course. Nothing you do in his name is overlooked. Nothing. Nothing that you do out of love for Him is overlooked. Or because you're in Him and you want to glorify Him. None of it's overlooked. None of it's forgotten. None of it is insignificant. That's not pep talk. That's Bible, right? It's, it's not just certain deeds that follow us in. Every deed follows us in. God sees. God remembers. God keeps His promises. You endure. Nothing you do in His name is overlooked or insignificant or a waste of time. Nothing. Nothing. Your God and Father and mine sees and will remember it all and He will give us rest from it for all eternity. Beloved, we will not be disappointed. So there is no reason, no good reason to defect from God's grace. Don't turn away. Don't quit. Don't quit. By grace, 
believe until the end. And by grace, beloved, we will.